We're coming off CNN's big debate last night to decide the next chair of the DNC. I'll tell you who screwed up, who's likely to win, and what their challenges are. We've got a top uh, data analyst and pollster to come on and tell us, are the Republicans really in trouble? And of course, Oscar predictions and a few more fun things coming up. This is The Thomas Guide, your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas, political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Welcome back to another episode of The Thomas Guide. What a week it has been. And here's the big story that I just want to clear up before we get into our show. Uh, we've got some great guests coming. Uh, uh, millennial money expert, uh, Shannon Game. Uh, Shannon Game. Uh, we've got a top political pollster joining us. A little light, more lighthearted stuff toward the end. But I, but here's the big, the big story this week has been on those town hall meetings that have been interrupted by protesters across the country uh, when members of Congress are holding holding town halls and they're getting shouted down, they're getting death threats. Um, the, the question is here, uh, Trump called them so-called protesters, meaning that they're astroturf, they're fake, uh, they're paid protesters. And the question is, is that true? Um, Democrats allege they're not. Uh, some Republicans are split. Some are taking the side of the president saying, yes, they're all fake. Others are saying, well, I'm sure they're not fake. Uh, I don't know what the president's talking about. As a political strategist and operative, I've seen this same song and dance many times over. Let me just clear this up. Are there paid protesters at these town halls? Yes. Are they all paid protesters? No. But here's the important distinction. The ones that are paid are not necessarily the protesters, although I think the violent ones are typically paid. The ones that are paid are the organizers, and that's the critical component. Because without organizers willing to pay for, uh, uh, paid organizers willing to literally spend, you know, five to 10 hours a day calling people, calling Democrats, making sure that. They come to, to organize when they when they say they will, making sure that they're fed and they have drinks. They sign petitions. Oftentimes, they're picked up in buses and then bus to the locations. That all costs money. Now, is that organic? Absolutely not. That stuff, in this case, is being funded by the Democratic National Party, uh, special interests like George Soros, um, it's being funded in part. You're seeing Planned Parenthood being very involved in activating these people. And they're doing it for a couple reasons. The main reason is optics. Uh, because it's a classic adage is, is if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and in this case, you know, there's a lot going on in the news this week. But CNN and Fox News and others continually go back to this town hall protester because it's beautiful, shocking, provocative imagery of having a, a congressman or a senator being shouted down by these protesters. So Democrats get it that they're owning the narrative war. 
I think Trump is wrong in the sense of saying they're all so-called protesters. It's not true. People are upset. There's no doubt about it. But here's something you have to consider. Two things. One, uh, it's easy to fill a room with 200 protesters. I do it all the time for corporate special interests, for, uh, for political interests. It's not hard, especially with a topic as polarizing as Obamacare or, or Donald Trump. But while these, a couple of these rooms might be filled with 200 protesters, let's not forget all of the people, the silent majority, that voted for change and for Donald Trump in those important states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida. Those people are not showing up. They're frustrated. They're concerned. They're not showing up at these town halls because they're giving Trump a chance or they're liking what he's seeing. And they're waiting to find out that if their 401k that's invested in the stock market is going to give them a higher dividend return this year. That's what they're waiting for. So we'll see if if members of Congress have a tough enough constitution to, to withstand the attacks. I would recommend if I were... Uh, um, advising a particular congressperson, I would say don't do the town halls anymore because you're you're going to lose at that game. Uh, pull back. Don't do it. And uh, particularly in these areas where they have safe seats, there's no need to put themselves through this and give the Democrats the optics of winning that. So that's my take on 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 that. Um, we've got a we've got a pollster coming on on, on the horn in a few minutes uh, and he's going to talk. We're going to ask him about uh, what he thinks just looking at Trump's approval numbers, the party's approval numbers, Obama's Obamacare's numbers, if the party really should be worried and bringing in a historical context. And then the other thing I would say is people are making the comparison between the Tea Party uh, and those protests and town halls and what's going on currently. And I would argue they we're talking apples and oranges. Um, first of all, the Tea Party was much more organic. Uh, they are were largely formed by volunteers. Um, and the other issue is the Tea Party activated a class of voters that were not engaged prior and not voting prior. They were not engaged in the political process. The Tea Party brought those people into the fold. By and large, the people who are showing up at these protests, uh, at these uh, town hall meetings, they're rank-and-file members of the Democratic Party who are voting anyway. So it's not as if new voters have yet to come into the fold. If that happens, the Republicans should be worried. But we'll talk more about that with our guests coming up in a little bit. Betsy DeVos, who's the Education Secretary, uh, butted heads with the White House administration this week when uh, there's a... The Trump administration yesterday basically said that the protection for LGBTQ students um, is a state's right issue, and we at the federal level don't want anything to do with it. Um, Betsy DeVos issued a statement contradicting the administration, saying, I'm going to only read you a portion of the statement, but she said, quote, we have a responsibility to protect every student in America and ensure that they have the freedom to learn and thrive in a safe and trusted environment. Uh, this is not merely a federal mandate, but a moral obligation. No individual school district or state can abdicate. 
so later at CPAC, uh, which is that conservative conference, um, actually happened, start, started yesterday, it's going on today, um, Betsy DeVos kind of sidestepped it a little bit. She said, quote, the, this issue was a very huge example of Obama administration overreach, one-size-fits-all approach to issues best solved at personal and local level. So she changed her tune. Looks like uh, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, won that argument. From what I hear, he was advocating to make it a local level. But here's the thing. Whether you agree with the transgender bathrooms or you disagree is really irrelevant because this is a local issue, and that's the problem. You, you get uh, the left and liberals think that everything should be, uh, there should be one standard for everyone. Uh, whereas that's actually not the case. Look, this issue is such a polarizing issue. Let a state decide. And if you are so angry uh, in disagreement with that state that, and you feel that you can't, con uh, you can't uh, persuade your, your local assembly member or, uh, or state senator or governor to change your position, leave the state and go to a state that agrees with your political priorities if that's a big deal to you. But kudos to Donald Trump and to Senator Sessions. Being a true conservative is about limiting the power of the federal government and limiting the scope of what it gets involved in. This never should have been a federal issue. Uh, so why did Betsy DeVos weigh in on this? And how interestingly... As the left was trying to block Betsy DeVos from getting confirmed as education secretary, saying she has no experience and she's uh, just a big fat cat donor and she can't represent the interests of students. Now, actually, she was fighting for the side of the liberals, interestingly enough. Here's why I think she made the statement she made. She knew she was going to lose. But I think she's trying to repair her tarnished public image because of what the Democrats had done to her and given Olive Branch to basically show uh, Democrats, not liberals, because they'll never like her, but Democrats, that she's not simply a right-wing mega donor and that she can stand on her own and be independent. I, I think it was purposeful, um, and uh, that's why that happened. All right. Last night, on CNN was uh, the Democratic National Committee had a, uh, a debate amongst the lead, all the contenders for the to, to replace uh, Wasserman Schultz as the DNC chair. Largely, it was a snooze fest, but there were a couple interesting things that came of of the debate. Um, first, candidates were complaining that Donald Trump stole their message, their message of fighting for the working man and whatnot. And in that, they're right. He did steal their message. Uh, but not necessarily that he hijacked it. It's that they left it wide open and they hadn't been addressing it because I've said on this show, as I've said on this show many times, the Democratic Party is largely becoming the party of open borders and refugees. They're not the party of Americans anymore. They're the party of immigrants. Uh, they're the party of... Uh, what used to be the blue-collar worker, they become anti-coal, anti-manufacturing. Um, and that 
left them completely exposed to something that Trump instinctually understood. And when he spoke in areas like Wisconsin and Michigan and those Rust Belt areas, that resonated when Hillary Clinton was talking about jobs, which wasn't often, but when she was talking about it, it was about stopping coal production that's right there in the ground that these miners want to take out of the ground and investing in clean and green and solar and wind technology. And while that sounds great, I guess in a liberal think tank, those aren't shovel-ready jobs. Those aren't jobs that people know that they can get today. Um, that's something that may come in the future, 10 years, 20 years from down the road. But the art of a good message and a good political message is meeting the voters in the moment where they're at and answering the concerns they have in the moment, not talking about something 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And that's often where Republicans miss the mark too because when they're talking about reducing entitlement spending because there's this pending boogeyman of economic collapse with Social Security and stuff 20, 30 years down the road, Intellectually, that makes lots of sense. But if I'm in the Rust Belt and I've done my part and paid my taxes and I've paid into this system my whole life and I've either just become eligible or I'm going to become eligible for Social Security, I want my money now. I don't want to hurt myself for a problem that may come 20 years down the road. And that's the same on the economic issue. So, so they're right. Trump did steal their message. Um, I think we've got a video from Keith Ellison, who is uh, one of the leading contenders for the DNC chair. Uh, there was an accusation that he's anti-Semitic. Let's go ahead and roll on Tuesday, you criticized President Trump on Twitter for not speaking out sooner about anti-Semitism. You have critics in your party that say that is the right message, but you may not be the right messenger because you're dogged by your own questions about potential anti-Semitism. What do you say to your critics? Well, these are false allegations, and, and that's why uh, I have 300 uh, rabbis and Jewish community leaders who have signed a letter su supporting me. Five of my colleagues, they said, look, we don't have, I don't have anything to say about this race, but we know Keith, and he's a good man and always has been. All right. Sounds fair enough. One problem. He is anti-Semitic. He has said things and supported people like Louis Farrakhan that hate Jewish people. Um, and, uh, my, my friend, uh, John Phillips, uh, talk radio show host here in LA and a CNN political commentator said last night we were on CNN together. And, uh, when we were talking, he was talking about the prospect of Keith Ellison, Congressman Ellison becoming chair of the DNC. Uh, John said, there's no way that God loves me that much to possibly put Keith Ellison in power. And, and it's a funny joke, but it's true. I mean, if you're a Republican, Keith Ellison is the perfect boogeyman. Um, he is so far left, so radical, and not just because he's uh, been with uh, said anti-Semitic things, but he's so missed the mark on what we were just talking about, on what Americans care about, uh, that he could push the party further to the left. He is the Sanders the Elizabeth Warren, and even more to the left of them, wing of the party. Now, here's how this vote is likely to break down. You've got uh, a bunch of candidates, but really only two leading candidates. Congressman Keith Ellison, who we were talking about, and Labor, Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez. Uh, Perez 
the way it works is uh, there are multiple rounds. The vote will be held in Atlanta on Saturday at the DNC meeting. The There are multiple rounds of voting. So the top two vote-getters in the first round are likely to be Tom Perez and, uh, and Keith Ellison. Then the question is, as the lower vote-getters fall off and go to uh, where do their supporters go? And that's how this gets interesting. From what we hear, Keith Ellison has about 160 confirmed whipped votes, and Tom Perez has something like 50. And if that trend line continues, Keith Ellison should win it. Um, The analogy I'd like to make is that Democrats are struggling in the party with, in this choice between Ellison and Perez, whether or not they want to fall in love or fall in like. Because the falling in like is Tom Perez. He's kind of the safer, do-no-harm approach. But Democrats like to fall in love. They want the Elizabeth Warrens, the Bernie Sanders, the Sabre Rattlers. Uh, and that's Keith Ellison. Uh, so we'll see how it shakes up. My hunch is Keith Ellison um, ends up taking it. But stranger things have happened. And if he does, uh, good luck to the Democratic Party. So that'll be fascinating. Another big story this week is Milo Yiannopoulos. I can't even pronounce that name. Uh, He is the former uh, conservative firebrand contributor to Breitbart News. Um, He basically fell apart this week. You remember two weeks ago, he was slated to speak at Berkeley and violent protesters blocked him from speaking at Berkeley. Uh, Then all of a sudden, Uh, This last week, a series of tapes were edited together where Milo was uh, essentially advocating uh, for uh, child molesters. Now, you got to be, first of all, Milo is a firebrand. He is a self-proclaimed troll. Uh, So... He picks fights with everybody, and he says everything tongue-in-cheek. But this video uh, crossed a line that even Milo couldn't come back from. So Milo was forced to resign from Breitbart. He had a book deal that was rescinded, um, and then he held this press conference. Can we roll the video? I'm a gay man and a child abuse victim. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Two men touched me in ways they should not have. One of those men was a priest. My relationship with my abusers is complicated by the fact that at the time, I didn't perceive what was happening as abusive. But I can look back now and see that it was. I still don't view myself as a victim, but clearly I am one. Looking back, I see the effects that this had on me. In the years after what happened, I fell into alcohol and nihilistic partying. It lasted well into my 20s. A few years ago, I realized it was time to do something good with my life. I started focusing on work, but the black comedy, the gallows humor, and the love of shock value I developed in my 20s never really went away. I've reviewed the the tapes that appeared a few days ago in the proper context, and I don't believe that they say what is being reported. Nonetheless, I do say some things on the tapes that I do not mean and which do not reflect my views. 
My experiences as a victim led me to believe that I could say almost anything on this subject, no matter how outrageous. But I understand that my usual blend of sassy, gay British sarcasm, provocation and gallows humour might have come across as flippancy. So there you have it. Uh, CPAC, which is that conservative political group, uh, had Milo slated to speak. They yanked his speaking role uh, because they said uh, they said the revelation of an offensive video in the past 24 hours uh, condoning pedophilia uh, was reason enough to 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 pull him. So here's the question: What's next for Milo? Does he have a career ahead of him? Is he completely done? Was that his 15 minutes? Uh, I would argue he's not done. He'll be back. Uh, first, he lost his book publishing deal. He'll find another because now we know his name. Uh, and he still has a ton of hard right-wing fans that will follow him on his social media. Whether he's an editor at Breitbart or whether he's speaking at CPAC, uh, Controversy in this sense is a good thing for Milo. People will buy his book, if nothing else, because they're curious. So Milo has a bit of rebranding. If I were advising him, I would suggest that he start a charity um, for uh, child abuse, uh, well, to fight a child abuse, um, and try to mend his image on that sense a little bit. But he'll be fine. He has such a large base of supporters he'll come back i hear he's going to start his own media network which would be which would be smart because he's got a few million people to start with if he could charge each of them a dollar a month uh the venture would work so good luck to milo uh it just got a little too hot in the kitchen for him on this particular issue so ann coulter who was on our show i think on our second episode um was on Tucker Carlson show this week and addressed what a lot of us have talked about, which is you know, what should Donald Trump do about his Twitter account? Can we go ahead and roll the clip? Are you disappointed in anything the president has done? Um, oh, no. I mean, the thing there's, no, there's not one thing that he's done. We thought ah. I think you should tweet more. <laughs> Come on now. What, what would be I the purpose of that? I love his tweets. <laughs> I love them so much. It drives the media crazy. Everything. And I wrote in Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome. Um, I wrote it with Never Trumpers in mind. I understand what the complaints are with Donald Trump. But then as I was writing it, I realized, you no, know, all the stuff that I used to say, okay, well, there is this baggage, but he's the only one who's pushing and the only one in my lifetime to push, push issues that are important for America. I started to realize, no, I actually like even the stuff, even the bag. What it's about fun. his staff? Are you impressed by They're the most impressive people. You think Spicer's doing a good job explaining the White House point of view? Well, no one can do it as well as Trump. <laughs> no one can do it as well as Trump. And she makes a good point. I completely agree that Trump's Twitter account is the most powerful weapon he has uh, for two reasons. First of all, taking his message directly to the people unedited is a very powerful thing. But the other is simply the ability to drive the mainstream media insane and distract them and get them off a message. Like if, if Trump has a, a Michael Flynn moment uh, where he's got to get rid of Michael Flynn because Michael Flynn embarrassed the vice president of the United States, Trump single-handedly can send the media away from that story with his Twitter account uh, to a whole nother story. It's, it's a powerful thing. 
completely agree with Anne. Uh, keep tweeting, Donald. Okay, we've got this <laughs> this video where Sean Hannity uh, asks. <laughs> it's it's like a it's like a rallying point. They've moved on from lock her up uh, accusations about Hillary Clinton to picking on the mainstream media. Newt Gingrich really hit on this in the 2008 elections when he ran for president, that it's never a bad thing in a Republican primary to beat up on the media. Just let's roll this clip. They gave her the questions at CNN. I know. Could you fake news? Fake news. Of all of the media outlets, which one was the worst? Which one? I can't hear you. <laughs> As someone who's on CNN a lot, uh, and I'm on a couple times a week, uh, <laughs> they're not the worst. But it is hilarious to see that re like Republican base voters come up with these <laughs> little cliches, and it's cute, it's clever. But I mean, if we're talking about a partisan bias, NPR, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, um, those are far more partisan than CNN, but it, it's just funny how they get that, that rallying point. Uh, and it's become, uh, it's become like the, the whole fake news thing is really just the latest example of the power that Donald Trump has to brand and brand people and companies and things the way he wants, whether it's Lion Ted or little Marco. Um, uh, Pocahontas Warren. Um, it's it's really a remarkable trait. Whether you agree or disagree with them, it really is relevant. It's just, it's fascinating. All right, we've got our first guest on the line. Um, Byron uh, from uh, WPA Strategies uh, is their chief data officer, um, a pollster, and, uh, and can you hear us, Byron? Uh, yeah, I can, John. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so I've got a couple questions for you. Um, let's let's start with the 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 big story of the week, uh, which is these protesters at the town at town halls. Um, what do you make of that? Should members of Congress be worried? Um, you know, I don't th I don't think they should be. Quaking in their boots, boots worried. I, I, I think it shows something we already kind of know from the data and know know from, uh, from the early days of, of the administration here, which is that, especially when we talk about Obamacare, which has long been kind of a 50-50 issue um, with American voters, there are going to be some folks out there who, who are willing to go defend it. And the left is very clearly um, going to spend the time and energy to mobilize their their people and get them out uh, and get them out to these rallies um, and then these town halls. Um, you know, I, I think when we get big news stories about people like Tom Cotton being uh, confronted at a town hall, I, you know, if Tom Cotton's in trouble, it's a uh, you know, the deluge in the Senate, the likes of which we haven't seen for you know, not only think Cotton's up, you know, for a hundred years. So these aren't these aren't necessarily. You know, 
things that mean that 20, you know, 2018 will be some terrible year for Republicans. But I, I, I do think, you know, it shows that the left is, you know, they have, they know what their issues are that they can mobilize folks on and they're, and they're going to spend it, do spend the time and the money to, to get their folks out. And they're going to continue to do that over the next two years. What, what, um, what kind of messaging would you recommend to Republican members of Congress on Obamacare? How should they be framing this issue? No, I, I think it's important for them to remind, you know, to be out there talking about the damage that Obamacare has done. You know, the, you know, there are people who have benefited, but there are also people who have lost their health care, their health insurance. There are people who have lost the plan they were on. There are people who are, law, who are you know, have seen their costs skyrocket. Or their choice of doctors go down. It's important that our, that you know Republicans remind you know continue to remind the fo- the people who will be helped by you know repeal and replace by reform by you know changes and reforms that w- that that we're working for them. Um, it's it's very easy for the Democrats to find the people you know the handful of people mm-hmm. who have benefited from Obamacare and really highlight those stories. But there are millions and millions and millions of Americans who have been hurt. And can and can have their lives made substantially better by you know repealing place with some better policy, and and that's what we need to be highlighting you know, highlighting every day. And and uh, public polling out on on President Trump's uh, approval numbers uh, mm-hmm. seems to be dipping. At what at what point uh, should the president actually be worried about those numbers? I know it's 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 too early in the sense of to project necessarily for the midterms, but if you're if you're uh, Steve Bannon, at what point do you start to get worried? You know, I think, you know, I think any time you're, you're at these kind of numbers and the consensus, I mean, the consensus of the polls seems to be another point or two down and we're looking at very low 40s or, or maybe upper 30s approval. You know, any point you're this low, you, you have to be concerned. Um, I do think they're so early in implementing any kind of agenda or getting any uh, any actual policy changes. I mean, you know, especially anything that requires congressional action, it just hasn't happened yet. So I think it's very early in the game, and and presidential approval numbers do move relatively quickly. It, these aren't the same things as say, you know, a ballot number, which you know, once voters have made their decision, unless there's significant new information. Um, you know, things don't change much. These are these are numbers that, with a few policy, you know, a few popular policy successes, can move quickly. But I do think, if you know, if I were in the White House, I'd be looking, I'd be looking to find what those policy successes are and making sure, make sure, making sure I, uh, I accomplish them. Yeah, it it, it seems uh, it seems as if the the real devil in the details here in these numbers uh, that I didn't see out of the Pew uh, survey that was released this week is where is where is Trump with his base? Uh, do you know? Because that to me seems like he has to as long as he's hanging on to his base, uh, that's he's in a fine position because he can always all he has to do is worry about marginally expanding as we go into the midterms. Do you, do you know wh- where his base is of where those numbers are at? Yeah, I mean the Republican numbers are still are still quite good. Um, let me, see, you know, he he still looks to be in you know holding his own uh, with Republican voters. Let me give you, you know, one example would be in the Quinnipiac in the the relatively recently released Quinnipiac poll. 
you know, he's he's still holding on at 83 percent amongst Republicans. So, you know, the 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 big number that that is driving his numbers down, frankly, is that he's historically bad with the historically negative with the opposition. Typically, uh, typically a newly inaugurated president gets some kind of grace period from the other party. And he's sitting at 5% approval amongst Democrats. I mean, this is a, this is a massive, this is a massively polarized moment in our politics. And that doesn't matter a whole lot because those folks were never going to vote. They were going to get in line anyway, right? Yeah. They were going to, yeah. So, so, I mean, Byron, that's, that's what kind of boggles my mind of like trying to prognosticate looking at these numbers is at the end of the day, the way I see it is the partisans are going to take their sides. It's really, right. you know, you're fighting over those folks in the middle, those folks in mm-hmm. the Rust Belt states. And so, you know, looking at these national approval numbers, it just confirms, yep, Democrats still don't like him. And as long as he's not hemorrhaging with his base, I feel yeah. like, you know, just keep your head down, do your job. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's. I mean, and let's. I mean, let's be honest. There have been a few PR stumbles sure. out of the gate that sure. that they had to clean up that haven't helped. But again, I mean, we're 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 still in February, and we haven't even begun to see you know Trump outside of a couple of executive orders, you know, get any you know begin enacting an agenda. And so I think it, it's very much too early to start worrying about midterms and. It, very, very, very much too early for him to begin worrying about you know, 2020 at this point. Byron, have you? Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, have you done any testing, or is it is it too early uh, to do this? But have you done any testing in any of your uh, uh, federal races about um, the immigration and kind of that that whole debate uh, of? I've been I've been arguing uh, on this show that the Democrats are shifting left on that issue and they're becoming the party of, you know, open borders and refugees and and Trump being a hardliner on immigration is really putting Americans first. Have you modeled any of those those frameworks out and who wins that debate in in uh, in a midterm environment? You know, we, we have we've looked at a couple of things. We've obviously looked at the refugee question. We've looked at the sanctuary cities question that that is you know coming up in a lot of our in a lot of our states and will probably become a much more you know a federal policy matter even more here soon. And in general, you know you're you're exactly right. The sanctuary cities you know argument is not a winner for Dems outside of those urban cores. Um, we we were just looking, for example, at some data in Texas, uh, which suggests that even that Hispanics in Texas. You know, a majority of Hispanics in Texas want to see, you know, criminal illegal immigrants deported and not protected by, you know, some of these uh, mayors and and, and liberal county sheriffs like, like in Travis County. Um, it's also it's also interestingly a very strong, you know, fighting sanctuary cities is very strong amongst African Americans, um, mm-hmm. which you know puts puts the Dems in a position where. You know, one of their moves left may be jeopardizing, you know, at least defending another one of their constituencies. Uh, and and the, the refugee stuff works similarly. I mean, these are these are these are issues where you know, there is a winning position for Republicans to be for strong borders, to be protect for protecting people against terrorism, to be for you know, to be against federal law and protecting criminals. Um, if you know, if if pitched right and if 
you know, if, if discussed with the the right language and you know, not not done in such a way that it uh, you know, paints too broad a picture. Yeah, it seems to me. I appreciate your insight, Byron. Yeah, it seems to me that the uh, the Democrats are, are 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 falling into their own trap <laughs> that they have laid out. <laughs> you know, looking. I, I you know we're based here in California and the whole sanctuary right. state, sanctuary city battle. You know, and, and Trump will enjoy fighting that fight publicly. Uh, seems to me that if I'm in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Michigan and I'm watching this thing play out, uh, Trump has the moral high ground on this debate. Uh, and it and it yeah. and it not just I think Trump will probably win that debate, but I think it presents a larger challenge going to the midterms of turnout for the Democrat Democratic base. Not in not in California where it's irrelevant. It's in those in those you know Midwest states, those swing races where those sanctuary cities might not be a popular position for them. So it's hard to turn out their own folks. Is that something you think that the Dems should be concerned about? Oh yeah, I mean a- absolutely. If I'm you know if I'm a, a Claire McCaskill in Missouri, or if I'm a you know a, a Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, um, or even maybe a Bob Casey type in Pennsylvania. And I'm looking at trying to defend a Senate seat with my party going you know, crazily to the left on on these issues and and putting me in a position of, prote- of defending things like sanctuary cities. I'm not. That's not where. That's not a thing that makes me happy at all. If I'm one of those those vulnerable right. Democrats, and right. I think we, you know, this is this is the, you know, this is the issue that was exposed in this election as as the core of the Democratic Party and as its leadership becomes really a coastal, you know, a coastal elite leadership. It's leaving a lot of you know. It's leaving a lot of previously democratic leaning voters in the middle of the country behind, and there are still a lot of Democrat office holders who are trying, who are trying and, and becoming increasingly endangered trying to hold on to that territory. So I mean, this is a you know this, you know the 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 risk for Republicans is un, isn't is a potentially unpopular president. The you know the opportunity for Republicans is a. You know, a president who may be un- unpopular in California and New York, but since, you know, his relative is doing the right things for the rest of the country. Right. Okay. Uh, last question, Byron. If you were forced to have either a popular president, but incredibly unpopular policies, or popular policies and incredibly unpopular president, what would you take? Hmm. You know, I want a. I- I would want I would want popular policies if I was running you know if I was running for congressional reelection or running on those policies. I mean we saw this a little bit in 2014. We had you know Obama who whose personal favorable numbers never really dipped. I mean personally people liked Obama all the way through, but his job approval was low and the policies that Democrats were forced to defend were really really negative, and that's why we we took the Senate and made gains in the House. And so I would, you know, personal popularity of the president is not nearly as critical as whether the things he's doing are things that you can run on and win. Yeah. Message Trump's personality, not to use the pun. Right. (laughs) 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 Hey, Byron, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I really appreciate your time. Uh, How can people how can people find you? Uh, You have a Twitter account Uh, or a website or they, they can find me on Twitter at Alan WPA. Or they can that's A L L E N W P A, or they can find us on the web at WPAResearch.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great right. day. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. 
Well, there you have it. Uh, Byron, I didn't get a chance to really explain his bio, uh, but he was partnered with Chris Wilson, who was on with us a couple weeks ago, uh, who they were the lead pollsters and strategists for Ted Cruz for president. Um, Byron and his shop uh, advise as pollsters to like half the Republican congressional delegation uh, and just really smart guys. What I like about Byron and Chris is that when you talk to them, you don't get a hyper-partisan tilt from them. I think that's really important when you're looking at political professionals. Um, we may have our personal feelings, but at the end of the day, the numbers are the numbers, and you have to look at it just passionately as you possibly can. So appreciative that Byron joining us. We've got our next guest on the line already. Uh, Shanna Game uh, is a certified financial planner. She has an MBA from Pepperdine. Uh, I have my master's from Pepperdine as well, so we're both waves. She's a serial entrepreneur, but more importantly, she has a podcast called uh, Millennial Money, where she advises millennials on basic personal finance wisdom. Uh, Shanna, are you, can you hear us? Yes, and it's actually Shauna. Oh, Shauna. I'm sorry, Shauna. Don't worry about that. Everybody, including my parents, gets it wrong. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, your parents, I don't know what the excuse is. I'll, I'll take the excuse. But uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell us first, tell us a little bit more in depth about your podcast and your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been in the financial planning uh, field for about 11 years, and um, I'm young, I'm under 40, I'm a female, and there aren't very many of us. Yeah. Um, so when I, I started out, you know, I had a background in entertainment. I started my first business when I was 19 in college, and so that was really kind of like my real-life MBA. Um, and I learned, you know, all about budgeting and manage, managing money and PR and marketing and all those sorts of things, you know, right at sort of the cusp of the internet age. Um, it would be so much easier if I had, you know, social media and the things that we, the tools that we have now, but, um, that really sort of grew my interest in combining education and entertainment. So when I got into the financial field, you know, I really saw this gap where, you know, people in their twenties and thirties weren't getting educated about anything financial. There was just this huge kind of void and they really didn't even have someone to look at to help them, you know, learn these different concepts and manage their money and get over debt and all these sorts of things. So I started to do a lot of, you know, money coaching and teaching and writing and um, had the idea for the podcast Millennial Money about two years ago and thought, well, you know, let me just, let me just try and, and see what, uh, see if this resonates and, you know, two years later, we have a, a massive audience all around the world. Um, it's a five-day podcast, so we do, you know, all sorts of financial tips. We do fun stuff where we highlight uh, millennials that are, you know, chefs and musicians and authors and people that are doing cool things. We have a whole day devo devoted strictly to travel and lifestyle, which wow. is a huge top topic with millennials. Well, um, I, as a fellow millennial, uh, I am curious... Why do you think that millennials lack the basic financial education that perhaps our parents uh, had? I don't, you know, that's a really fascinating question. And I have spent so many years kind of trying to dig deep into that one to find out, you know, is there like one particular thing that I can pinpoint? And there really isn't. I mean, I think a lot of millennial parents actually did not get this education. 
Um, and so, you know, there wasn't anything passed down. And then I also think in our school systems, you know, we've cut so many programs that, um, you know, this is one unfortunate thing that goes by the wayside. And I, you know, I always say, you know, we, we teach our kids, you know, how to use a condom, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but we're not teaching them how to budget or manage their money. And, you know, that to me is just as important to kind of set them off on the right foot. Can you can you give us, uh, I hate to use the pun, but I'm going to use it. Can you give us some common sense uh, tips to, like, give me the top three tips uh, to, if you would give to a millennial to kind of get their financial house in order? Yeah, so my number one tip um, really is something I call know your numbers, which is really understanding every single expense that comes out of your bank account or your credit cards every single month. Where is that going? And knowing that really gives you power over the money. I think so many people hate the word budget, but you know, I think if you can reframe what a budget actually is to you, it's really just a vehicle for you to be able to achieve whatever goals and dreams that you have. I think it, it's more powerful and it, it comes to life, but really it starts with knowing where every single dollar is going. And I think that's really powerful. I mean, I've seen people, people's lives change just by focusing on that one little thing. And, and what do you um, think that, of, sorry to cut you yeah, off because I do no, want to hear your two other tips, but what do you think about those services like Mint and others where you just plug in your, your bank information and all of a sudden it, it populates your expenses and your income and all that? Is, is that, are those overhyped or is that something people should be using? No, I think those are really great. I mean, you know, let's face it, like millennials are not watching TV. They're on their phone. You know, it's the YouTube generation. So you know, having those tools at your fingertips, I think it helps you. You know, a lot of those programs, you can actually take a picture of a receipt when you're out mm-hmm. um, and it will automatically categorize that spending. And so I think anything that makes it easier, but but you also still have to, you know, invest time in, uh, in your money. You know, and it doesn't take a lot of time every single month, but, you know, a, a couple regular check-ins will, will definitely keep you on the right path. But those tools are great. I mean, they're, they're tools for everything. And I think, you know, you really just got to figure out what works best for you. And sometimes that means trying 10 different tools. Right. Uh, okay. Give me your last two tips. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no problem. So, so the next tip really is, I think, not being fearful of credit cards. I think, you know, there's a lot of myths and, um, you know, certain beliefs and advice out there about credit cards, but credit cards can be really powerful these days. There's lots of great uh, perks and benefits, um, traveling and gift certificates and all sorts of things that you can that you can get from credit cards. But really it's about using your credit like debit, right? So you, you charge during the month, you pay it off. Interest isn't, you know, you not even have to worry about the interest rate. So you're kind of getting all the benefits of a credit card, but you're using it smartly like a debit card. Great. And, the th- and, and what would you say the third was? I think the third tip really is, again, I'd kind of go back to um, to really uh, rethinking how you think about money. You know, I think the emotional side of money is something that we all gloss over, and we don't spend enough time in that sort of arena thinking about, you know, how did we form a lot of our money habits? Usually they're formed um, before age seven. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that we go through life. We get relationships kind of layered on top. And we don't actually deal with, you know, why are we making certain decisions in our life when it comes to money, good or bad? 
you know, really understanding that landscape before we start actually like kind of charting our financial future or our financial plan. Hmm. Uh, this is fascinating, uh, Sean. I, I appreciate your, your breakdown. How, how can, unfortunately we're out of time, but, but how can we find your podcast and follow you and all of that? Absolutely. So I'm on all the platforms, but the best one is iTunes. Uh, just go to Millennial Money and you can subscribe to the podcast and uh, you know listen to all of our episodes. Or you can head over to uh, my website, which is Shauna, S-H-A-N-N-A-H, game.com. And we've got all sorts of tips and great tools up there for people. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Shauna, for coming on. And uh, I recommend uh, everybody who's watching and listening to check it out. So thanks so much. Uh, we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. It's pretty, pretty helpful. It's cool tips. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of those services like Mint and others because, um, you know, when you're lazy and you want things to auto-populate and every time you do that, you figure out, oh, my God, I can't believe I was spending several hundred dollars a month on useless things. Um, and it's neat. If you're looking to save some money, there are usually areas that are things that are auto-charging to your, to your account. Or another tip uh, that I've done is I'll go back and look at subscription services, um, cell phone bills, uh, cable bills, Sirius XM. And I'll look at, say I've been subscribing for a couple of years, I'll call them up and say, hey, uh, are you running a promotion? Or in the case of Sirius, I'm going to say, I'm seriously considering canceling you right now. Is there something you can do? And they always they always come in with a discount or half price. And there you go. You've just saved yourself potentially not just 100 or so bucks a month uh, that month, but thousands in the long term. So um, always helpful. I'm glad she joined us. For our next segment... Uh, it's Oscar season. Uh, I've, we've got Roy G, our engineer, and Jenny Lee, our producer. Uh, you guys, are your mics hot? Yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. Oh, hi. Hello. I'm actually staring at these two the entire <laughs> show. You guys can't see, but uh, they're directly behind the camera. So nice to hear from you. All right. So Oscar predictions. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these things, but CNN's saying that that the big winner is probably going to be La La Land. Um, I've seen it. I know. I don't think you guys have. Nope, not yet. Uh, it's uh, good. It's good. I don't want to say it's great, but it's good. Uh, if you like musicals, I would highly recommend seeing it. It's uh, They're not exactly reinventing the game with this movie, but it's cute and clever. Uh, if you like Ryan Gosling, he's all over this thing. Uh, of the list... Jenny Lee, is there anything that pops out? Well, the only one I can really speak to is Arrival. I've seen that. Yeah. Did you did you like it? I thought the start was very intriguing. It kind of takes alien movies to a different level. It's more based on the intelligence of alien life rather than the kind of gooey, squirty, yeah. kind of more traditional alien films that we're all used to seeing. Um, it has some political undertunes, which are interesting, but I did find it got a little far-fetched towards the end. Yeah, I haven't seen yeah. it. but I'm a, I, I'm a harsh critic, though. But would you recommend? We yeah, get out, out there and see okay. it. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Uh, you know, on, on the list, the other movie I really liked was Hacksaw Ridge. That was Mel Gibson's uh, coming back movie from the dark. Uh, I'm not a racist. I, I, you know, I can 
write a movie about a, a guy who won't even hold a gun. Uh, really great story. God, it was gory. But all war movies are um, just really well done. Um, I would recommend it. But my guess is La La Land uh, pulls it out. But, but we'll see. Um, actor in a leading role. They're saying Denzel Washington in Fences is going to take that. I heard his performance wasn't that great. Um, I don't know. I'm just I, of there. You've got Ryan Gosling in La La Land, um, Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea. I don't know. I just don't think any of those performances are like knock your socks off that I that I've seen. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Emma Stone takes uh, actress in a leading role in La La Land. By the way, did you know in California, a judge just overruled this week that uh, California had passed a law banning companies like IMDb and whatnot from reporting the ages of actresses? What? Yep. Uh, they had California passed a law because they're saying that old ladies, once you get past your 30s, can't get any acting work. And you know what? There is truth to that. If you're an older woman, it is very hard to get work in Hollywood unless you're uh, a grandma role or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or witch or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because largely women are, you know, they want to go for the sex appeal where men have a little bit longer range depending upon who they are. I mean, The Rock is kind of screwed because once he's the big, he's no longer the big tough lead, you know action hero star he can't be the gentle grandpa you know it's, it's not gonna be his thing but um but a judge overruled that this week and said ah, no you can't ban websites like imdb and others from reporting the ages of actors and actresses yeah, it's gonna leak anyway somehow, exactly so what are you gonna do i think it's a little too far-fetched that you're gonna... it, it is and uh I understand if an actress doesn't want to put their age on their personal page okay but stripping it for Wikipedia and IMDb and all that, let's get over it. Uh, let's go through a couple more stories. Uh, Jenny Lee, I think you've got a story for us. Yes. So this is an interesting one. NASA has just um, released new reports of seven Earth-like planets that have been discovered uh, 40 light years away. Um, and all seven planets have the potential to have water, which means that there's potential for life. And those are kind of the headline grabbing lines, are we alone? Is there extraterrestrial yeah. life out there? Um, so it's three of those planets are apparently within the, the correct distance to actually have a very good chance of having water. That's really exciting. You know, I'm that geek who watches the Discovery Channel uh, on, on my in my spare time, and uh, there's no question out there that there is, is life of some kind. Uh, what's interesting is how close this solar system is to us that could potentially have life. And if you think about how many galaxies upon solar systems and solar systems within solar systems and black holes and wormholes, things that we'll never ever see, and we can already see one that hypothetically could be a model for life, it's like, well, you know it's out there. Um, it's probability. It is probability. So pretty cool stuff. I also think the interesting thing going on in the space exploration world is the privatization of space ex exploration. Uh, the Elon Musks of the world are doing so well for one reason. 
Uh, and, I, and I think the NASA, although I love NASA and JPL and all of those, I think they're largely going to be extinct. I think federal funds are going to be cut off uh, eventually altogether from those organizations. Although they do great work, it's simply a cost issue. And the reason an Elon Musk can do what NASA does for a fraction of what, Na- of what it costs NASA to do the same research or launch the same uh, space mis- mission is because the federal government requires a, it's like a, it's like a 99% uh, likelihood of success on any time a mission is uh, endeavored, whether there's a human on board or not. So to reduce the uh, likelihood or, or to increase the likelihood of success to get it to that 99% threshold, those extra, let's say, um, I'll give an example. Let's say it costs to launch something into space. I'm going to make up a number. $500 million, okay? Uh, for $200 million, I could get it to like an 85% to 90% success rate, okay? But to get that extra 9.5% success rate literally doubles the cost of the project. Right. I mean, that's it. If you mess up, you just do it again then. Well, that, that, <laughs> and that's it. But the, but the, gov- the federal government, because it's, it's not their dollars. It's like the government's dollars. They, no politician wants the blunder on their watch yeah, yeah. of having a failed space mission. So it jacks up the cost. So that's why a guy like Elon Musk can come in and – like he's had a couple good successes, but he's also had a couple spectacular failures where they've crashed and burned. But it's private capital; it doesn't matter. Anyway, that's you heard it here. That's the shifting face of of, uh, of space exploration. Okay, this story we just had to go through because <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it says uh, in the Daily Mail there was a study that was released in the UK that says obese men last a minute and a half longer. In the bedroom. Uh, overweight men last seven and a half minutes in bed compared to the six minute average. Six minutes. It's not very long, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be slightly longer. Right, right. That's what she said? <laughs> uh, you're, when you're obese, you're kind of going slower anyway. So the whole, well, the whole... yeah, yeah, that's, that's so interesting. True. Well, I, I hadn't thought of that. I was thinking more because there's less blood circulation. You might have reduced feeling. Right, right. Uh, in those parts, and so reduce uh, libido as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. True. The, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Reduce libido. Uh, well, um, the <laughs> the article's headline is "Let them eat cake," which yep. is very appropriate. Um, well, how do you get a fat person in bed? Uh, yeah. Piece of cake. Piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, I bet if I read this to uh, Bill Handel. Uh, he would go seven and a half minutes. I was thinking thirty seconds. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. Well, um, perhaps there is a a sixty second or so benefit to being overweight. But the um, first of all, people who are really really fat are generally less physically attractive. So that means they're having less opportunities to have sex, right? So. They may be the king of stamina, but it doesn't matter because there's no one to test that out on, uh, number one. Number two, if you're really fat, uh, it heightens your risk of stroke, of heart disease, of dying. I wonder, this study, this study didn't cover it, but I wonder what, if there's a correlation to how many people die during sex 
the people that die during sex of a heart attack or whatever, I bet there's a higher likelihood that people who are fat die more often during sex. Oh, yeah. There's got to be, the juice be a is, link there. The juice is not worth the squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. We had to cover that story. Uh, last, last story for the day is, you know, we like the Kardashians. We like Kanye West. And a life-size statue of Kanye West as Jesus has appeared on Hollywood Boulevard. We've got a picture of this. Oh, my God. We've got a picture of this. First of all, Kanye West only wishes that he were as, j- as jacked and as ripped as that Jesus. Um, it's called uh, False Idol, according to the, the Hollywood Reporter. Um, and uh, it's actually, well, it's a plastic, uh, I guess it's plastic Jesus. Um, what a bizarre thing. People's obsession with Kanye West. It just ugh. pop stars always do that. They have that religious link, don't they? Like Madonna did it as well. Yeah. They also have large egos. Yep. So there's that. Um well that's it for today's show. Uh hope you enjoyed this episode of, of uh, the Thomas Guide. We next week we've got a surprise guest uh, you're gonna love. Um we're gonna go on remote to interview him. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk to. Please feel free to tweet us, tweet me, uh, producer Jenny Lee or, or, or engineer Roy. Uh, check us out on Facebook, on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of The Tom's Guide. This has been The Thomas Guide with John Thomas. We hope you've enjoyed the ride. Join us Thursdays at 1 on Facebook Live. Tweet John at The Thomas Guide. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. Or you can go 